Hello, everyone. I'm Alicia Kraus, and we're live with our newest episode of The Conversation. And with me is our very own Ben Shapiro, who will be taking your questions live for an entire hour. Please remember that The Conversation is streaming for everyone to watch, but only subscribers get to ask the questions. You got that, right? I did. Only subscribers. Oh, okay. Only Daily Wire subscribers. How do you become a subscriber, you ask? Well, head over to dailywire.com, click the login, become a subscriber. If you're already a subscriber, then in our video description, if you want to ask a question or become a member, just head on over there. And be sure to tune in for next month's episode on Tuesday, January 15th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific, featuring our very own Andrew Clavin. That's awesome because that's my birthday and I won't be here. You know, when I'm here, I sort of want to die. If you don't want to die, though, and if you don't want to think about death, then perhaps you should think about life insurance. It's a deeply unfun topic, sort of like me being here. But most people don't like thinking about dying, and they definitely don't like thinking about insurance. Actually, having life insurance feels pretty good, and getting that peace of mind doesn't need to be complicated. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find the coverage you need at a price you can afford. From there, you can apply online, and the unbiased advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape leaving you free to do the things you actually enjoy, like not being here or thinking about life insurance. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. Whether you're shopping for disability insurance to protect your income or homeowner's insurance or auto insurance, they can help you get covered fast. If you've been intimidated or frustrated by insurance in the past, give Policy Genius a try. Just go to policygenius.com, get your quotes, apply in minutes, you can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Policy Genius is indeed the easy way to compare and buy life insurance, so go check it out right this very instant. And the other cool thing that everyone should be checking out is last night you were on Fox News with our, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Martha McCallum. She's awesome. And she's pretty awesome. And she let you kind of do your big book cover reveal. Yeah, that was pretty cool. So the brand new book is called The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great. It officially releases in March, but you can head over to therightsideofhistorybook.com and you can pre-order your copy after the show or during the show. I hear that it is a great read. You know how I hear that? Because I wrote it. You're definitely going to want to add it to your collection. And if you don't, I'm going to take it extraordinarily personally. I did, in fact, spend an awful lot of time and effort on this book. I consider it my magnum opus. I think it's the best thing that I've ever written. Uh, And I hope that you will enjoy it. So go pre-order it right now and make sure that you can get your copy when it finally comes out. So uh, if they don't, then they would be on the wrong side of history, right? That that is correct. And then you'd need life insurance because... (laughs) I mean, this does protect you eternally, this book. I mean, I don't want to make promises I can't fulfill, uh-huh. but I just made one. So there you are. So we got some questions that are about to be rolling in. Who asked the questions, you wonder? Oh, our subscribers over at dailywire.com, who we love a lot. We do. If you subscribe, we love you. If not, the real question is why I'm here and you're not subscribing. See, I slave away each and every day to bring you the best in content. Then you don't subscribe. You know what I think of you? You know what I think? Well, first of all, I love that Such you're listening. A Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. But also, why aren't you subscribing so you can ask questions? I know it's what you really want to do. You know it's what you really want to do. So go check that out right now. All right. If we could scroll up so I can see this awesome subscriber's name. There we go. Samuel. Samuel wants to know, do you think political science is, uh, I'm sorry, do you think a political science major is useless? Or do you think it is more valuable if it comes from a well-known school, say like Hillsdale? What majors are good for getting into politics? Okay. So political science is indeed a useless major. I know as a poli-sci major at UCLA. Here is what a political science major is good for. One, getting into law school. Two, nothing else. It does not qualify you to do anything. But if you go to some place like Hillsdale, they actually teach you some of the ancients. They're very focused in true Straussian fashion on Aristotle and Plato. You'll at least read the classics. You'll know about Western civilization. If you go to sort of a generic policy program, then they're teaching you about whatever stupid theories a couple of the professors at at the school had. You don't really learn all that much. Policy was good for me in the sense that it taught me that I couldn't trust what was being said in class. I needed to go outside of class and, and read a lot mm-hmm. of stuff. But uh, I think that poli-sci majors, let's put it this way. When, if you graduate with a degree in poli-sci, you are qualified to do nothing except go to law school or get a job where you actually learn what to do on the job. All right. I love this lighthearted question from Elise. She wants to know a little behind-the-scenes funny story about your kids. Oh, well, you know, it's, it's hard to do that because there are so many funny stories <laughs> about my children. Well, here's one from like an hour ago. So my son just came charging in the room. I was studying Talmud with somebody, and my son comes charging into the room with a jelly bean in each hand. And he says to me, Daddy, which jelly bean you want? And I said, I'll take that one. And he smiled, and he put both of them in his mouth, (laughs) because that is what children do. Children are just little monsters. They're little evil monsters who are terrible people. Yeah, last night, my son, we went to dinner. Okay, so rule number one, never take your two-year-old son to dinner, ever. (laughs) Right, huge mistake. But my son, is in he's in the mode right now where... Whatever he does is the most troubling thing. Like the most troublesome thing he can do, he will do. So we go to the restaurant. The first thing that he does is he takes a glass of water and pours it out 
on the table. And then he takes salt and shakes it out all over the water. And then he takes a knife and starts beating it against the puddle of water on the table. And finally, I clean all of this up. And he says, I want orange juice. So I get him some orange juice. He then proceeds to take the orange juice and pour it all over the table. Then we get in the car. There's a little bit left of the orange juice. I'm like a fool, like a fool. I give it to him because he's crying and whining because he won't stop crying and whining. And I give it to him and I say, don't spill it. By the time we get home, it's one block, one block. He's poured it on himself. So I get him out of the car and say, you know what? It's time to go take a shower. No, no, we have to take a shower because you're covered in orange. No, well, tough. I'm big. You're small. No. So anyway, I wrangle him finally into the, the bathroom. And then he proceeds to start digging immediately through all the drawers in the bathroom and dumping things on the floor. This is my life pretty much for four hours a day with my son. My daughter is my daughter is really smart. And also very sassy. Like she and does cunning. not take, she's very cunning. And she does not take crap from anyone. I wonder where she gets that. Yeah, she, my, my daughter's a lot more like me. My son's more like my wife. My son is just sweet by nature and really nice and a little bit mischievous. And, and as for my daughter, my daughter is like, you cross her, you die. I mean, my daughter, in the she zombie apocalypse. She a really good evil glare, too. Oh, yeah. In the, and she's it, given that since she was like two weeks old. This is exactly. If the zombie apocalypse happened, I have no fears for my daughter whatsoever. Like, my son's a wild man. Like, he'll. If, if, if there were a zombie apocalypse, my son would do the same thing he does every day. He'd just find a light socket and stick his finger in it. But my daughter, my daughter would immediately grab a hammer and start going to work on the zombies outside. So, um, but it is true that um, it's funny. I walk around the city a lot with my kids. And when people see me with my kids, they're like, oh, you're a happy person. I'm like, right, because I'm with my kids. That's, that's the actual rule. My kids so, are the best. They are indeed. And also the worst. This is, the, <laughs> this is my theory about, I, I've said this before, theory about life when you're single. Your spectrum of happiness to sadness goes from like, you can be like a seven at the upper end and like a two at the lower end. And then you get married. And then your spectrum of happiness goes from like a 10 at the upper end to a zero because when your spouse is upset, that's worse than anything else or your spouse is sick or something. And then you have kids and then all limits are removed. So the happiest stuff that ever happens with your kid, it, with, with your kid is the happiest stuff that will ever happen to you. Like when my kids are playing together, or when I'm watching them like ride the ponies at Griffith Park or something, like that's spectacular. And then when they're hurting, like when they get hurt or when they're fighting with each other or they're just being maddening, it's the worst thing ever. And you're like, why didn't I sell these children to the circus? Because the circus is banned now. Because, you know, animals can't ride them. I know. I'm but, surprised they still let you ride the ponies. By the way, they, they should, uh, I mean, I'm going to say something really politically incorrect. But okay. they, there should be a child circus. And the child circus should be only single women who love watching babies. Because I've noticed that when I bring my children out to the mall, it's You like, pick up all the single ladies. All the single women are like looking at my kids. Oh, they're so cool. Like, yeah. so, if, yeah. if somebody ever wanted to make a fortune... They wouldn't have like these web, these live porn cams on the web. They'd have like live baby cams on the web. And all it would be is just like, okay, make the baby crawl. Okay, make the baby turn over. Maybe don't use those two words in the same sentence that's ever true. again. You have, that, that's true. Let's They're move on. They're not meant in the same way, guys. Stop it. Terrible. Okay. Moving on. Norm says, Ben, the subtitle of your new book indicates that you believe that the West is built on two poles, Athens and Jerusalem. Do you believe that these are in tension with Leo Strauss's view, or do you believe that the moral purpose of Jerusalem and the telos, did I say that right? Yeah, it's telos, All right, yeah. I, the, of pagan Greek or Greece, pagan yeah. Greece can be regarded the same like the scholastic. Okay, so first let me unpack the questions for people, the, the question for folks who don't actually for understand the, the question. Yeah, exactly. So, so Straussian theory is basically that there's reason and there's revelation. There's Jerusalem and there's Athens. Jerusalem is about the revelation of moral principles from on high that are not based in reason. And Athens is based in reason. And so these two things are been in tension. And that is what actually has created the West. And then the perspective of the scholastics that these two things are actually not in tension. That Greece, that, that Religion is indeed rational. There's an inherent rational side to religion. So I tend to, so I, I believe in one sense, I'm a Straussian in one sense, I'm, I don't mean to split the baby, but in one sense, I'm a Straussian in one sense, uh, I'm a scholastic. So I'm scholastic in the sense that I think the basic principles of religion can be reasoned out through natural law. Uh, so I think that if you have a view toward, toward the purposes of the universe, I think those can be reasoned out in the same way that Maimonides and Aquinas did in sort of Thomistic thought. And, and these match up with the generalized main principles of the Torah. I also believe that in order for you to even utilize reason, you have to, turn, you have to take certain principles as revelatory. And this is where there's a tension because you have to take certain principles for granted. The capacity for human reason, the capacity for free will, the idea that there's an understandable universe. These are all things that cannot be proven. In fact, science cuts against some of these things. But you have to assume these things in order for you to even use reason to achieve certain ends. And so that means that you have to take certain principles of reason on faith, right? That's a revelation. You have to take those on faith in order for you to even utilize your reason. Now, the reason ends up being in, in 
con it ends up being in conflict with the faith and in tension with the faith because then you use your reason. You're like, well, why should I believe any of those things in the first place? Because it's not necessarily rational. And that's why I say that faith undergirds reason. And it's a mistake when reason goes to war with faith to the extent that it starts undermining itself. All right. Good answer. Thank you. I mean, I'm sure you're telling yourself that in your head, too. Well, I, I was. I mean. <laughs> Eric wants to know, hi, Ben. I have a crush on this girl at my school. I love romance questions but I haven't been able to work up the courage to ask her out. Is there any advice? And he wants you to run in 2024. Well, I mean, honestly, I would have better advice if I'd had any success at that, like <laughs> ever, except for except for my wife. Uh, I am old-fashioned. I'm very straightforward. So I know that this, the, it, it depends. I am very relationship-oriented when it, when it came to dating, which meant that, to me, there was an end to the dating, right? The, the idea was not just to go on a date with a girl or have a good time or go to a movie or whatever. The idea was that I was dating for a relationship. And so... I never did this whole, well, I'll become friends with her first, and then we'll hang out in groups, and then I'll gradually like kind of ask her out, but not really ask her out. My feeling is that good women, good young women, good you know, teenage girls, whatever, whoever you want to date, that those people are interested in guys who are straightforward. Now, that may actually cut against you in high school when there are a lot of frivolous people who want to do frivolous things, but it's, it's a rarity now for a guy to just ask out a girl, for a guy to just walk up to a girl and say, listen, I find you really attractive. I think uh, I've, I've gotten to know you a little bit. And I would really love to take you out for dinner. I think that girl, a lot of women pretend they don't want guys who are aggressive that way. I think that every good woman wants a guy who's aggressive enough to ask out a girl. If he's not aggressive to ask out enough to ask out a girl, he's not aggressive enough to go out and protect a woman. He's not, uh, he's not aggressive enough to, to create a life and a family in a, in a, in a cold world for, for that woman and for your kids. Women actually like guys to be guys. They don't want guys who are kind of like the emo, okay, maybe we'll go out, like the passive guys. And if you're, if a woman likes a passive guy, she's, she's setting herself up for failure because there are certain qualities in, in manliness that are necessary to the success of a relationship. But I mean, you should really ask Alicia that question because Alicia is a woman. Preach. And so she, she might know what like a guy should ask a girl. So if you were a teenage girl, again, you know, it's so two years ago. I was 20 when I met my husband, instantly had a crush on him because, you know, He's a lumberjack and he's good looking. He is. Dude. I mean, he looks like a Viking. Like a real life Viking. And uh, so we actually worked together. So we were always professional in, a, in our work situation. But once after we had worked together for a couple months, kind of gotten to know each other on the road, all this stuff, uh, one of the things that instantly attracted me to him and why I was willing to like jump into a long distance relationship with someone that I had only known for a couple months is because of how direct he was. Yeah. Women like to be pursued. And even the girls that pretend like they don't want you to be direct really do want you to be direct. So I totally agree with this. And this is how it was with my wife. When I, when I met my wife, uh, basically my sister said there's this really attractive girl who I met at this Shabbaton, like on uh, a Sabbath at uh, UCLA. And I said, awesome. And then I just emailed my, my, actually my sister emailed her and said, I want you to meet my brother. And my wife was actually kind of, trepidatious about this. Uh, and then I just called her up on the phone. I said, do you want to go out? And that was pretty much that. So mm -hmm. it's, it, again, I think that what a lot of feminists say women want is not even close to what women actually want in men, uh, which is why every single study that's ever been done shows that women actually like more masculine men, including feminist women yep. who say they don't like more masculine men. I mean, they, nobody actually wants, I mean, for lack of a better term, the soy boys. That's actually not a thing that women actually want. There was an article years in... Like, that's not a rip on vegetarians. That's a, it's a rip on the life. It's a rip on kind of the, the appearance. There was an article years, like probably 12 years ago, and it was in GQ, and it talked about how Republican men bleep better. And there okay. is... But I think that part of it, like the author's perspective was that she was this promiscuous woman that went mm -hmm. out and like had, you know, yeah. relationships with men on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. And it was that because Republican men were more manly. Okay, and I will also suggest that one of the reasons that, that this study would show that sort of thing is that Republican women tend to be married to those Republican men mm -hmm. and that sex within marriage is a lot better by every survey imaginable for women, particularly inside marriage. Like well, women, women require a level of comfort for a good sex life. And the idea that women are really happy jumping bed to bed is just nonsense. Dudes are happy jumping bed to bed because it's just a physical act for, for men. But for women, it's an act of emotional intimacy. And that's why inside marriage, inside long-term relationships, but mainly marriage because it has mm -hmm. a commitment attached, sex is a lot better for women than it is just being randomly promiscuous despite what society says, that women are going to be happier with the sex in the city lifestyle. There's a reason that at the end of sex in the city, basically all of them end up married because that is the end goal for most women. And with kids. If they're, right. If they're, <laughs> it, 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 I think that most women who are healthy and most men who are healthy, but when it comes to sex, most women who are healthy want a long-term relationship because that is how we are biologically built. I mean, I know that we, we're going to try and run up against biology now, but the reality is that in every primate species, women have to be a lot more sexually selective than men. 
because females have to be a lot more sexually selective than males because that is how we are built evolutionarily. Men are built to spread their genetic material and women are built, females are built to be incredibly selective about the, the people and, and beings with whom they mate. So there's this really interesting video over at PragerU and it was the PragerU video that got the most hate and it talked about how men are better off when they marry because mm-hmm. you live longer, you typically make more and you're, you have a more active sex life. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's totally true. There's this idea that all men are getting, you know, are having sex whenever they want if they're single is just, no, that is untrue. <laughs> Joel wants to know that Georgia might be d- deep purple due to the trend of the tech cybersecurity jobs that he thinks are moving to the east, like the Army Cyber Command and Fort Gordon, et cetera. How can the GOP gain those suburban urban votes such with all these demographic changes? So I think that, number one, the GOP has to stop scorning urban voters. So the, And I don't mean black voters. I mean, like, people who actually live in big cities. There's this cultural gap where it's like, we like cowboys. We like steak. And we have to, we, we have to just, right. We can like all those things, but we can also say that it's kind of cool to live in a city where there's yep. lots of cultural things to do. We can yep. like movies. We can like TV. We can like all of these things, right? We can like symphonies. We can, we can do all the, we can, we can like gastropubs, right? We can do it. We can, we can. IPA like, for the win. Right? You, can, you can be like one of these humans, <laughs> right? You can do all those things and still La be Croix. conservative. Right. LaCroix La sadly great. Although the best description of LaCroix is that it is soda for ghosts. Um, but the, but the truth is that we haven't reached out to urban voters. And again, I'm not speaking about minority voters. That's not a euphemism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we haven't reached out to suburban voters, particularly President Trump has done a very poor job of reaching out to suburban voters because he's basically doubled down on, on the rural base. Suburban voters are still families. I mean, it's families who are occupying tract homes in the suburbs. And particularly, you can't alienate the moms. Okay, it was security moms who won Bush the election in 2004. And women in the suburbs are still deeply concerned about law and order about security, about the predictability of their local government, about the capacity to raise their kids as they see fit. All of these are winning issues. I've never felt that conservatism is limited is, is limited by kind of cultural overlap in terms of kind of cultural hallmarks, like what kind of movies you watch or what kind of food you eat. Um, but it is limited by, by principle. Uh, if, if you are allowing your kind of cultural conservatism, you know, vegans are terrible, vegetarians are terrible, they can't be conservative, all this kind of stuff, like, I know it's fun to joke about, but the reality is I, I know a lot of vegetarians who are actually conservative, uh, and I don't think that's terrible. I don't think that's wrong. I think we should be trying to appeal to as many people as we can without, you know, giving up our fundamental core principles. I actually have a very dear girlfriend who happens to work at the Heritage Foundation that is the most vegan, vegan-y person I know. Yeah, I mean, th- there are a lot of granola conservatives out yep. there, uh, and, but, they're, but they're actively being alienated by, by I think, a lot of people who— we talk in, in Red America about how much Hollywood scorns us, and mm. that's true. But in response, we've cultivated a sort of reverse scorn, and I'm not sure that's that's helpful. Well, coming from a steak-eating, IPA-drinking home birther, I feel like I read the line. You have, like, chickens in your yard. So, oh, my goodness. We, talk, we in- talked about whether you're white trash before the show, Alicia. <laughs> this is... <laughs> you don't have to recap that conversation. Not everyone from the Bible Belt is white trash. Of okay, not. LA Just boy? Just you. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't hitting everyone, Alicia. Let's move along to the subscriber questions. Okay, sounds good. Jonathan says, hi, Ben. I really enjoy your show. How historically accurate do you believe the New Testament is? I mean, as a Jew, not particularly. Um, so I think that the, the historical accuracy of the New Testament is mainly uh, in the circumstance as a Jew. I, I don't believe, obviously, the story of, of Jesus dying and then being resurrected and then, uh, and then ascending to heaven or any, any of that sort of stuff. Now, you tell me. What's the story? So the, the, you don't remember the story? No, I know the story. I know that he was resurrected. Yes, but after it, three days. No, that, that's, that's what Easter is and all then what about. What happened after that? What happened after that? Yeah. Well, then there's there's a whole um, all the epistles. So right. it talks about like Paul, like Paul the apostle, right. and his traveling and growing the church. No, no, that, that all that I got. But what happened to Jesus? What happened to Jesus? <laughs> yes. He's in heaven. We don't know when he's coming back. Right. So okay. And so Revelation so talks basic, about that. So my basic synopsis really was deep. good. So that so that's the part of the synopsis. I just want to make sure. Like I have somebody here who can check my work. So. But have you? It is a good question though, because there is so much that happened with the his, early church. Right. So a lot of the historical, that influenced history for years. Right. So I think I mean, that the stuff about the relations with the Roman Empire is is largely accurate. Mm-hmm. I think the part about Jesus specifically is not historically accurate from the Jewish perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of the descriptions of the Jews are not particularly historically accurate. There's an author named Chaim Maccabi. Uh, who's kind of gone through and looked at the New Testament and described what there is not supremely accurate. Like, for example, it talks about the Sanhedrin meeting in the temple on on a Yom Tov, on, meeting on Passover, basically. The hmm. uh, night of the Last Supper wouldn't have happened. They, they didn't meet that night. Uh, the, there's talk about uh, the people in Jerusalem waving palm fronds during the time of the Last Supper, uh, and that's not accurate. It's happening during Passover. That's a different holiday. That's Sukkot. Hmm. So there, there are certain areas where, as a Jew, you read it and you're like, well, that doesn't seem particularly accurate to me. But again, this is not my case against 
Christians believe in what they want to believe. This is why Jews don't believe that. So Interesting. Keegan wants to know, hey, Ben, I can't wait to read your new book. What's the name of that new book? It's called The Right Side of History. Thank you for asking, Alicia. <laughs> he wants to know, do you have any writing routines or habits that you stick to? Oh, I love it when uh, Drew gets these questions, too, because mm-hmm. Drew is so regimented when it comes yeah. to writing. He says, thanks for all of the great work you do. Aw, thanks. He said thanks to me, too. That's Isn't so that nice. nice. He That's loves so nice. the show. I'm glad someone appreciates you here. <laughs> It's appreciated. I know. Uh, so anyway, uh, my, my writing routine, when I was doing the book, so it was fantastic because this required a lot of deep thought. I mean, it's, it's basically a philosophical history of the West. I mean, everything from the Bible through the Enlightenment and beyond. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's references starting with the Bible and ending with Sam Harris, basically, the history of Western philosophy. Um, and so what I would do is I would go into my very well-apportioned library, which is the best room in my house, uh, and I would shut the door and I would put on Brahms, and then I would sit there for like two, three hours, move the phone aside, and just write. That's the best way to write. Uh, You do have to do that. So the the notion that you can multitask, it's just nonsense. There's no such thing as multitasking. There's just you being distracted. And some people are better at being distracted than others, but most people are really distracted. It's one of the reasons why I've I've said this before on, on this show, but when people say, can I have a minute of your time? The answer ought to usually be no, because a minute of my time is usually 30, meaning that it takes me five minutes to get out of my routine, then I have to be asked the question, answer the question. So now we're at like 12 minutes. And then it takes me a solid 10 to 15 minutes to get back into my routine. And so by the time this quick question has been asked, I've been distracted. So you really do need to be isolated. You do need to be, you know, outside the, the realm of your children jumping on your back. which With is jelly typical, beans. Yeah, that's typically the way that it's done. They, my, my kids know when I'm in the house. And so I've had to sneak into my house because what they do is they, they run into the library. And we have sort of a recliner. And they both climb on my back. And my son pounds the keys of the computer. And my daughter rides my back and shouts, ride, daddy, ride. And then, I have to, and then I have to run around the house with them on my back. So, Having children really did make you more human. Like having known yeah. you before, during, and after. It's true. You knew me before I had kids. That's true. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it did make it Imagine how terrible I was as a person before I had a wife and children. So, my goodness. So a little behind the scenes here. There's an unnamed person at the office that just had a baby. And this person said that she now knows a way to... Uh, actually have a dialogue with you that isn't socially awkward or work-related. Right. It's just pull out the phone and show pictures of kids. I love kids. Kids are awesome. <laughs> kids are great. Adults suck. Kids are fantastic. Because adults, adults have the, the capacity to make bad decisions, and that pisses me off. Don't make bad decisions. But kids, you still got to teach them to make the good decisions. So if they make a bad decision, they're a kid. You're like, okay, they're a kid. You give That's them a little bit of grace? Yeah, I mean, until, until they hit about four. <laughs> then it starts to change radically. <laughs> Nathan, probably an adult. Sorry, Nathan. Ben doesn't like you, but he wants to know, do you listen to music while you work? And if so, what type? I don't know. Nathan might make good life decisions. So, I mean, (laughs) as far as the music, okay, so the music that I listen to while I work, um, Bach is good. Brahms is good. Uh, Anything that has uh, a particular level of regularity is is good. Um, Chamber music is better for me than any vocal music distracts me Mm -hmm. uh, because then I start listening to the words. Uh, so I can't really listen even to... Even if it's like operatic in another language? Yes. Uh, I start, even then, it's still distracting because I'm trying to hear what the words are, mm-hmm. even if I can't understand what they're talking about. Um, but when it comes to, you know, I, I find chamber music to be best, uh, piano music to be second best, uh, and then symphonies to be, to be third if I'm, if I'm concentrating. All right. Dustin wants to know, what is something good or beneficial that one can get by reading Nietzsche? Any solid meat to put on, pull from his bones? Well, first of all, I will say that... that his thigh, the thigh meat is really, no, so, okay, so the, what is the benefit, cannibalism jokes, yeah, so, okay, so the, the Nietzsche. How tired are you right now? So tired, and so tired of being here with you. So the Nietzsche, <laughs> so the point of the Nietzsche, uh, uh, the Nietzsche question, so I do, this does come up in the right side of history. It does come up in my new book. Uh, I have a long section on Nietzsche. Uh, the, the part of Nietzsche that is exactly correct is when he suggests that without God, there are no moral standards, and so human beings are going to have to remake their moral standards and, and base them around will. His critique is correct. His solution is wrong. So mm-hmm. if you kill God and you kill a purpose to the universe, an inherent purpose to the universe, that can't actually be filled by reason and will. That's not something you can do because once you remove God from the equation and it's God that grants you the capacity to be a creative human being, you're made in God's image. It's God that gives you your value. It's the idea that you are given this divine spark that makes you different from an animal. Once you get rid of all that, it's very difficult to make the case that you should be able to create a rational moral system on, on this basis. This is my main argument with Sam Harris, who thinks you can do that. I, I don't see any evidence for that at all. So that critique is right. You know, the, so the part of, of Nietzsche where he talks about you know, the, the madman who's wandering saying, we've killed God and what shall replace him? Uh, that, all that is right. The problem is that Nietzsche is optimistic about that. He thinks, okay, well, what we'll fill that with is human will. We'll fill that with human will. And it's like, well, human will goes a lot of terrible places because it turns out that when we make our own purpose, things go wildly wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that 
people haven't misused religion and abused religion to for their own ends over the course of history. Obviously, they have. But the bounds of understanding there's morality outside you, that you are not the source of all morality, is deeply necessary. And if you don't do that, that's how you end up with the that's how you end up with the 20th century, basically. All right. Bob wants to know, he says that you recently argued that Google needs to run unbiased or needs to work on the unbiased and its algorithms. But won't capitalism and competition solve this big problem or is Google, quote unquote, too big? So I do not believe in breaking up Google. Uh, I don't think it's an actual monopoly. Uh, I believe they need to unbias their algorithm. But if they don't unbias their algorithm, then I think that there will be competitors that arise because there will be room for that. If it, it, Here's a good example. So Patreon is a massive company. Patreon is getting slammed over the last couple of weeks because they banned a guy named Sargon of Akkad, uh, who is controversial. I don't agree with him on everything, but he is not like David Duke. In any case, they banned him. And even if they had banned David Duke, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this whole social media arbiters get to determine what is or is not hate speech even when I agree with them on what they consider hate speech, if it's not violent speech, if it's not threatening speech, uh, my view is that you should be able to say it, and then it's our job to refute you. In any case, they did this to Sargon of Akkad, and then the next thing that they, and, and then Jordan Peterson, Dave Rubin, Sam Harris all pulled their Patreon accounts, and they are building an alternative. That's the right thing to do. It's not about regulating Patreon. It's about making Patreon feel the pressure of, you guys better hold true to your terms of service or people are going to leave. All right. David wants to know, hello, future President Shapiro. Do you think one of the reasons the Korean War is ignored in popular media is because it's difficult for the leftists in the media to cast the U.S. as the bad guy? Yeah, I do, I do think that's, that, that is certainly one of the reasons. I, I think that the fact that that was a successful war by the United States for humanitarian reasons makes it difficult for them to talk about it uh, in the same way as the Vietnam War. Now, if we won the Vietnam War, I think we wouldn't talk about it either. And what I mean by win the Vietnam War is just secure South Vietnam. The great tragedy of Vietnam is the precipitous pullout that leads to the takeover by the Viet Cong and the slaughter of a million people in Cambodia. You know, that that is is a huge problem. But America is in foreign policy great because it is good. And there would be no South Korea today if it were not for the sacrifices of men at that time of the American military. I mean, we lost tens of thousands of, of men in, in Korea. Uh, and by the way, I tend to believe that MacArthur was right and that we actually should have crossed the Yalu River and gone after China at the time. But uh, that is a rather controversial position. In any case, uh, yeah, we don't talk about the Korean War enough, which was a heroic war fought by heroes, and we have a thriving nation to to show for it. A th thriving ally. Right. Yeah. Michael says, do you think a religious or non-religious worldview influences one's political worldview, <clears> such <throat> as being a liberal or a conservative? Can we expect political progress with opposing philosophical worldviews? So I, I definitely do. I mean, I think that the, the religious worldview tends toward conservatism because you have to assume certain things. Number one, moral authority does not lie in you. Subjectivism is not correct. Uh, you have to seek truth outside yourself. Uh, there are authorities outside of you that you will have to acknowledge. Uh, you that human beings made in God's image have certain rights that are not alienable in the name of the collective. I do think that religion has a deep hold on, on the roots of the Enlightenment, which are the roots of modern conservatism. So absolutely. Uh, can we get along with different worldviews? Well, I think the answer is actually no. I mean, it depends on, it depends on the, the extent of the lack of worldview. So I think we can argue about the proper role of government in taxes. I think we can argue about the proper role of government in healthcare. I think we can argue about the proper role of government in education. I think there are lots of places where we can argue, but there are certain basic things we have to agree on if we are actually going to have a functioning society. And those things include the idea that you do not get to force me to say what you want me to say. You do not get to force me to worship who you want me to worship. You do not get to, you, you, you cannot say that my rational capacity is secondary to my ethnicity uh, or my roots, which is what intersectional theory basically says. We're not creatures of rationality who can converse with one another. We're just creatures who are made, stamped with a particular mold. And that particular mold limits our ability to speak with, with people who have had other life experiences. That is, that is anti-enlightenment nonsense. Uh, and you know, all, all of these things are things that we have to have in common. We also do have to have a common sense of what liberty is. And for the left, liberty is is basically being given things. And for the right, liberty is being left alone. I mean, if you had to sum it up, the left, the right basically says, okay, these are the things that I have in the absence of the government taking them away from me. And the left says, I can't truly be free, meaning I can't truly be happy or have a shot at, at a life that is painless unless you give me a bunch of stuff. That, that, that conflict of visions is extraordinarily serious. It's best described by Thomas Sowell in a book called uh, the, a, conflict, a Conflict of Visions is one of them. He also wrote one called The Quest for Cosmic Justice, which describes sort of the same problem. Soul's fantastic on this. All right. Eton, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Eton yeah. uh, says, good afternoon, Mr. Shapiro. Recently, you were profiled in Vanity Fair with that photo of you sitting behind your bookcase or sitting in front of your bookcase. 
Of Svarim, uh, yeah, yep. Svarim are Jewish yep. books. And if you wouldn't mind sharing your favorites and recommendations. Well, I mean, I have uh, a, a solid lot. set. Well, I have, I have some sets of, of Svarim. I know this is a very niche question, but it's become very hot on, on kind of Orthodox Jewish I Twitter. I saw that. Like, people are going crazy over this, apparently. Uh, so, I saw Bethany Mandel come to your defense, too. Yeah, because some, some people were really nasty about it for some reason. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the obvious ones are the Tanakh, which would be the, for, which would be the Old Testament, the Torah of Yim Ketuvim. Uh, that's the uh, the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, that's obviously top of the list, you know, for, for Jews, the Talmud, uh, the Mishnah. Um, but as far as kind of more specific books, uh, the Arach HaShulchan, which is a very specific halachic text, is really good. It's a good reference material. I study that once a week with with a rabbi. Um, and then uh, other other kind of inspirational books. I'm, I'm in the middle of one called Misilat Yisharim, uh, which is sort of what we call Musar in, in Judaism, which is basically almost a self-help book. It's like how you become a better person. Uh, that one's really good. There's a book called the Path. Uh, that that one's called the Path of the Just. Um, there there are a bunch of other books that are that are like that. Uh, there's there's so many really first rate. There's one called the River, the Kettle, and the Bird, which is all about sort of metaphor in the Talmud. Um, and then on the non orthodox side, Dennis Prager's books on this stuff are, are interesting. Dennis does a good job breaking down a lot of the various commentaries on various verses of the Bible, and that stuff is. Interesting. I like reading not only Orthodox perspectives, but non-Orthodox perspectives, so I know where we agree and where we disagree. All right, guys, we're almost halfway there, or we are a little over halfway there. Okay, we're on the living on a prayer. (laughs) But if you want to ask a question, and you're like, "How do we ask a question?" Well, our conversation is live for everyone to watch, but only our subscribers get to ask the questions. So click on the link in our video description to ask questions or sign up to be a subscriber, and then you can ask Ben questions for like the next 30 minutes, okay? And be sure to tune in for next month's episode on Tuesday, January 15th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific, featuring our very own Andrew Clavin. I gotta say, I'm so excited I'm not doing that one. That is my actual birthday. I'm Am so I- excited I'm doing an episode with Andrew Clavin and his beard. I, I, I don't know why, why you're into this beard thing. I mean, Drew looks like he's he, dead. No, no. I mean, he looks... I love Drew, but the man looks 98 years old He went from being an old guy to being a hot old guy. No, you're just obsessed with beards because your husband is an actual refugee from the show Vikings. Like Blood Eagles people. But that's not... That, <laughs> Slash Game of Thrones. <laughs> exactly. Um, men with beards are harder. Sorry. I'm just saying. And the internet agrees. So. Well, if the interweb says so. <laughs> Blake <laughs> says that he works with a very radical lefty who drones on about how awesome unions are. And recently, his fiance just became a part of one. Now, within a matter of weeks, she's about to lose her job. So what's your take? So my feeling is that voluntary unions that aren't kneecapping people are fine. I mean, if you want to get together with all the people you work with and you are bargaining collectively on the basis of your talent with management, I don't see any problem with private sector unions. I see a major problem with public sector unions, which are basically involved in a corrupt cycle by which they elect politicians by giving them money and then cut deals with those politicians to give them more money, which they then funnel back to the politicians to make deals with them. So that, that's supremely corrupt and has led to massive public sector deficits in places like California. As far as private unions, those have been declining for years. Only about 7% of the, of the American workforce is now in a private union, as opposed to something like 40% of the state and federal workforce is in, is in a union, which is pretty astonishing. Uh, again, the unions where people are, anything that, that involves consent, I am fine with. Anything where you're going to blast a scab, like you're going to go and kneecap some guy because he wants to work for a job for less money than you want to work for, that's your problem, man. I mean, if somebody's work willing to do the same job for less money, then sorry to break it to you, but you've been outcompeted. That's called the free market, and either you should increase your skill set or you should or you should lower your expectations of life. All right, Christian says that he often hears the word neocon used as an insult, yet he has no idea what it even means. So he was wondering if you could please explain what neocon is and what are the examples of neocons? Sure. So this is a term that is easily confused, and it's used in, I think, three different ways. So there's the authentic way that neocon came about. So neocon originally applied to people like Irving Kristol mm-hmm. uh, and Norman Podhoretz. These were people who were on the left in the 1960s. Uh, and then as the left left them, they were sort of interventionists in the Cold War. Uh, they were in favor of a social fabric, but they were on the left in terms of how much government spending they thought was necessary, for example. As the left moved radically in the 1960s and 1970s, these folks found themselves neocon. They were new conservatives. They found themselves in the conservative movement. Uh, they were very forceful in shaping the foreign policy of the Reagan administration, for example, because they were very hawkish. Uh, and so these neocons were kind of associated with a hawkish position on foreign fol- policy, first and foremost, but they were also associated with a certain warmth toward government involvement in the private sector. So this is where compassionate conservatism uh, was sort of a quote-unquote neocon development. Now, that's In the not Bush th- administration in right. conjunction with the war in Iraq, Right, too. so that's not the way that it has come to be used. The way that it has come to be used is in one of two ways. One, you hear people basically say, anyone I don't like is a neocon. 
Uh, and that means the people who are foreign policy realists are now neocons. So if you're in favor of any intervention anywhere, this makes you a neocon. That's absolute nonsense. So people have called Ted Cruz a neocon. He opposed the intervention in Libya. He opposed President Obama getting involved in Syria. And people are calling him a neocon anyway. And just because if you want to keep troops in Iraq, then this means that you are a neocon. If you were in favor of the war in Iraq, then you are a neocon, ignoring the fact that 95% of everybody at the beginning of the war in Iraq was in favor of the war in Iraq. All this makes you a neocon. It's basically an all-purpose slur used by people who are isolationists very often. And then it's also been used by a certain cadre of people to mean Jew. And so when people say people involved in foreign policy who happen to be hawkish, what you'll hear very often is the neocons only care about the fate of the state of Israel. By the way, the Israel opposed the Iraq war. I mean, it's sort of worth noting that, but and wasn't involved in the Iraq war in any way because the United States didn't want the, the Israelis involved in that war in any way. Um, but it has been used by groups, people, Stephen Walt, uh, Walton Mearsheimer famously would use sort of the term neocon in this way. Uh, so it's been used to label Jews. Like it, it would always be like, oh, Paul Wolfowitz, neocon. William Crystal, neocon. Okay, Condi Rice had the same foreign policy, but she's not a neocon. Uh, so it's, it's been inaccurately used. And so I think you have to decide how you're using it and how it's being used in order to determine what people mean by it. All right. Laurent wants to know, uh, advocating for absolute freedom of speech requires blind faith in human nature. Do you believe that humans are more likely to handle hate speech reasonably today than in the past? This is a good question. I mean, I think there are a lot of folks who would basically say that we need to regulate speech because if we leave people to their own devices, then they're going to engage in hate speech. Hate speech can be convincing. And this is how you end up with the Nazis. Wouldn't it have been better if Hitler had just been banned in the first place. Okay, well, human nature does make room for demagogues. There's no question that human nature, people will resonate to bad ideas. The, the, idea, the, the kind of hopeful Oliver Wendell Holmes idea that the marketplace of ideas will inevitably bear out the best idea, I don't think that that's right. However, the real question to me is not whether people will follow bad ideas. People certainly will follow bad ideas. Human history is replete with such instances. The question is, is it a bad idea to restrict speech in the name of trying to protect good ideas? And the problem is, that who decides what's a good idea and, who's, and, and what's a bad idea and who's making that decision. So I'm not comfortable granting to government, and that's really what we're talking about here. I'm not comfortable granting to government the capacity to wield a sword against any form of speech that it deems hate speech because it could be you next. I don't trust the government with a sword when I'm not sure whose hand is actually going to be on the hilt of the sword and in which direction the point is going to be pointed. So I acknowledge the risk that, that allowing hate speech will draw a certain number of people. But if you actually believe that people are inherently going to be driven to the worst, then you should not believe in a republic inevitably at all, even a republic with checks and balances. That's why I'm a believer in a mixed system that makes it very hard for people to pursue very, very bad ideas, but allows people, once they mobilize en masse, to actually do what they want to do. That's what the founders are seeking to do, is balance out these two problems in human nature, the problems of ambition and the problems that we make bad decisions, by basically saying we have a bunch of disparate interests, they're going to fight with each other, and nothing is going to get done. That was the way the founders saw of, of limiting human beings doing bad things was limiting the power of the government. I think it's a much better way of limiting the power of the government uh, than, than saying the government now has the capacity to restrict speech itself. Because again, that's just giving one small group of people the ability to point a gun at another large group of people and do what they want with it, which is, which is a serious problem. Marcel says, hey, Ben, how, in your opinion, should Christians vote in Europe? And how is European conservatism different from the American conservative movement? And he appreciates your answer. He's a big fan in Hungary, a subscriber in Hungary. That's pretty fun. How do we get him his Tumblr? Yeah, exactly. So, the, <laughs> so European conservatism has been nothing like American conservatism for a solid 100 years. So basically... The, the Euro European conservatism is anti-left, but it's not necessarily about small government, individual rights, uh, and preservation of those rights in the face of an overarching government. So what you see from the European conservative right very often is, no, we have to maintain our national health system. We have to maintain our high tax base. We have to ensure that we have a social safety net that takes care of everybody, but we are going to, and we're going to increase welfare, but we have to cut immigration so that we can pay for all of those things. And we have to build up our military for the possibility of foreign invasion. Those are really the two places where you see significant differences, uh, where you don't see a significant difference is on the size and scope of government. And so this is why when you say European right, you're usually talking about folks who are in favor of big government and, dis and, and sort of disagree with the, the internationalist left in Europe. So the left in Europe is very internationalist and believes in a multicultural ethos that is unworkable. And the right is distinguished by its belief in a non-multicultural ethos that can be preserved basically through limiting immigration uh, and has very little to do with the services the government provides. So U.S. conservatism is based a lot more on the idea that individual rights in a state of nature pre-existed government and were not thrown away by handing power to government. 
Europeans, both right and left, have basically decided that the government is there to take care of you. The question is, which you is it there to take care of? Uh, and the left basically says, everybody, no matter who you are, no matter what your culture, all your cultures are equal. Come on in. Everything's great. And we'll, and we'll raise government spending for all these folks as well. And the, and the right says, well, we have these social welfare safety nets, and we have to maintain those. The only way to maintain those is to restrict the people who are coming in who agree with us on general principles. So where the European right has something in common with the American right is that American, the American right also does not believe in multiculturalism. That's where you see a crossover. But where they don't have a lot of crossovers in terms of the size and scope of government spending and role in the economy. All right. Eitan says that you've discussed the possibility of visiting Israel. Possibly it's part of a speaking tour in the coming years. Is there any chance that that will be happening soon? So I would really love to come with my family in around the Chagim this year, around like September, October this year, since I have to take days off anyway. It seems like a pretty good time to go to Israel, so I'm not missing additional days on the show or on radio. So we're, we're thinking seriously about that right now. We'll have to figure that out in the next couple of months because now it's a big production for me to travel, considering how many folks we have to bring with and, and security and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Steven says, if you could create a secret society, assuming that you haven't already, well, what color would the robes be? First of all, we're called the Jews. <laughs> we meet on Friday nights at my synagogue, and that's when we decide how the world economy is going to go. And also when we decide who's going to run the media, and also when we decide how the Nobel Prizes will be distributed this year. All happening at my synagogue every Friday night. As what, far about, as, what about the interest rate and the GDP and all that other uh, stuff? Same all, same meeting? All that stuff. Oh, okay. All that stuff. I mean, we are busy on Friday nights. Let me Oscars, tell you. Oscars, Emmys. All of it. Wars. Oh. Alicia. Gas prices. Oh. Okay. And but, but, but if I really to create a secret society, what color would the robes be? Um, well, I mean, if, you have, if you're going to create a secret society, they have to be red, right? I mean, this is why the Catholics are awesome. I mean, they, they really do have to be. <laughs> you do have to, you have to go with the most colorful thing that you can find. Red is a great, like, you wouldn't want to go with, like, mauve. Like for a secret society, like you want, you want to go with like scarlet red, right? You want it like Handmaid's something inti- tail style, so, right? So something intimidating, something scary. That, that's what. And, and if I were going to create a secret society, it would be called the Constitution, right? But I don't think it's necessary. That's called America. <laughs> Blake says, Ben, do you think your book could sell as well as a particular blank book that he cannot remember the author's name? Well, this is what I fear. What I fear is that people are so stupid that I write an entire book on the history and philosophy of Western civilization and it sells fewer copies than an empty book I endorsed called Reasons to Vote Democrat. If this happens, I will be near suicidal. If this happens, all hope for the future is lost. If this happens, then man, I better have explored policy genius because I am just telling you that this is like, people wonder, where did my hatred for Michael Knowles begin? Well, it began long before that, but where did it begin to culminate? It was when Michael Knowles sold 250,000 copies of a blank book in which I wrote as many words as he did. And then he proceeded to cash checks. And then I proceeded to get him an agent to get him a book deal. I kid you not. A solid book deal for a blank book that any publisher could have created for $0. Does this make me angry? You bet your ass this makes me angry. I love it when people ask us to sign his book. Oh, yeah, I always, I, I always sign it in all capitals. Why? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. I always write, the words I am writing here are more than some of this book. Well, I mean, one time Cassie Dillon came in with a copy of Michael Moles' book. She came to Politicon yes. with one of these, and I wrote F.U., and then I signed yeah, it. Yeah, because she, she to, I mean, she works here. So she, like, d- she tried to play it off as your book. Right. It was just terrible. It was a terrible moment for everyone. <laughs> David says, hey, Ben, while there's an obvious moral disparity currently between Israel and its terrorist opponents, what do you say to people who decry the original settling of Israel as colonialist? Uh, it was not colonialist. Jews were not being sponsored by the by the occupying government, which at that point was the British government, any more than it's colonialist for Arabs to have come into that area and settled in that area. either. That was not colonialist. Either. There's been a continuous Jewish presence in the land of Israel since biblical times. It has never it has never waned. It has never stopped uh, that that. Presence is continuous. It long predates the existence of the state of Israel. Jewish settlers were were coming in and building up the land in the 1870s and the 1880s. They were buying land. All this was happening despite serious colonial restrictions by the British government and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so you know, the, the the notion that that all of this was was just Jews being pushed by the Europeans into this area, it's it's just it's nonsense. It's nonsense. And by the way, we should mention here that a huge number of Jews who are currently in Israel were expelled by Arab countries during the 1947-1948 Israel-Arab War, that while everyone likes to talk about Palestinian refugees who were mainly created by Arab governments invading the land of Israel and telling people that they should get out of the way. I mean, the, the constitution of these, the original Declaration of Independence of the state of Israel says Arabs are citizens, and the Israeli government was actively attempting to say to Arabs, we want you to stay here and be part of the new state. 
with all of that happening, some 700,000 to 800,000 Jews were expelled from Jordan, from Morocco. This is how you know, my, my wife's family, most of them end up there. Uh, they were expelled from, from places like Saudi Arabia. They were expelled from Egypt, which used to have a large Jewish population. Iraq used to have a large Jewish population. A huge number of Jews ended up in Israel. Israel took all of them in. The Palestinians, who were made into refugees, were not taken in by any of their Arab neighbors, any of their Muslim neighbors. They were instead kept in refugee camps for 70 years. They could be used as a tool by those countries uh, in their ongoing war against Israel. All right. Greg says, why does the moral right struggle to connect with the black and Latino communities, considering they're more religious by numbers than white Americans? Well, I, I do think that, you know, one of the things in politics that, that is, is true is that face-to-face contact makes an awful lot of difference. Mm-hmm. And the right has not spent a lot of time trying to actually cultivate that face-to-face contact in minority communities. Because what the right actually feels is that politics should not, in the end, matter, that everybody should be left alone. Their general approach to politics has been, I'm going to leave you alone. I'm just going to say this at 30,000 feet. Go do your life. I don't, I'm not interested in your life. You're not interested in my life. Leave me alone. Well, that doesn't work when it comes to activist politics. When you have people who go into minority communities and they say, listen, we know that you're victimized by the society and we're here to make your life better. We're here to help you. That's a pretty good pitch. And when the right basically says, well, you know, those people aren't helping you. Those people are screwing you. It's not unfair for people in those communities to say, well, where are you? I mean, you're saying I'm being screwed, but I don't see you here. I don't see you here every day working with me, trying to make my life better. And these people at least pledge that are going to do it, even if they don't actually fulfill it. So a lot of this involves we have to get more activist conservatives in these communities. We have to actually try and change people's lives on a material level. Or people are going to take the help that they can get. And the help that they can get right now is coming from the Democratic Party, which has suggested falsely, I think, that their solutions are going to make people's lives better. And they've also built an infrastructure in a lot of minority communities so that you can actually see their presence in these communities. I say this about conservative charity all the time. The highest level of charity, according to Maimonides, is to give anonymous charity. That when I give charity, I don't talk about where my charity goes. But the problem with that is that people then don't know that you're actually charitable. And so what you hear a lot about the right is you guys aren't charitable. You want lower taxes. It's like, well, we give way more charity than folks on the left. Like I gave a, I gave a fair bit of charity this year. And I just signed a lot of checks yesterday. But I don't like talking about to whom the checks go because it's self-aggrandizing. I don't, I'm not into like putting my names on buildings or endowing chairs or something. But And whenever the right does this, then the left goes crazy, right? The Koch brothers give lots of money to various causes and they get slandered for it anyway. But if you're not talking about the good stuff you're doing, nobody knows you're doing the good stuff Mm -hmm. is part of the problem here. All right. Cade says, should he be concerned about the liberalization of Kansas? His district, which encompasses suburban Kansas City, elected a liberal Democratic congresswoman, and we now have a Democratic governor. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that everybody should be worried about liberalization of their areas. I think part of that is a backlash to President Trump. I think a lot of Democrats didn't show up in 2016 who showed up in 2018. I think suburbia is moving away from the Republican Party. I think that what this election really showed is that red areas got more red blue areas got more blue, and purple areas got a little more blue. I think that's, that's really what this election tended to show. Uh, and Republicans had better work on those purple areas, and they better make sure that the blue areas don't feel so alienated by Republicans that they need to get out right now because your candidate is the worst person who ever lived and all this kind of nonsense. All right. Matthew says, hi, Ben. You've said that the government should get out of the business of marriage. I agree. But if this happens, what would you recommend non-religious people do as an alternative? So I'm, I'm not saying that people shouldn't get married. I'm saying the government shouldn't be involved. So if you're non-religious, just go sign a contract. That's all That's all it is anyway, right? I mean, my, my marital document, I have the one from the state that I don't care about at all. It's buried in my garage somewhere. And then I have my ketubah, which is the actual Jewish marital document, which is framed in my house. That's pretty common in the Jewish community because that actually matters, right? That's the one that matters to me. Well, that it's also a contract. It's not just a, it's not just a document saying we're married. It actually has liquidation provisions. It says what the services that I owe to my wife. Like really, it, it has all this written in there. And this thing's thousands of years old, this formula. Well, I don't see why you can't sign that right now. My, my version, my, basically my vision here is that it's funny. The, the gay community basically said, we want all the benefits of marriage, but originally we don't want marriage, right? Civil unions are fine. So here's my recommendation. Everybody do a civil union, hmm. right? That's my recommendation. Go sign a contract. The contract governs your relationships with other people. If it works in business, it works in relationships. And then if you want that sanctified by your religious community, go for it. If you're non-religious, what do you care? Why do you want the state to sanctify you? The state has no sanctity to provide. All right. Tyler says, hey, Ben, I've recently been getting into Leo Strauss. What works of his would you recommend? And do you have any overall thoughts on his philosophy? So I find Straussian philosophy absolutely fascinating. I'm a big fan of, of Leo Strauss. Uh, Natural right in history is obviously his most, his classic thoughts on Machiavelli is, is pretty accessible. Uh, so the, the part of Strauss that I don't like is the part that Straussians do like. So the part, uh, I, I like Strauss's philosophy because he really was attempting to revivify the importance of the classics and the ancients in Western civilization. There was this view by a lot of people when he was writing 
that basically the Enlightenment had been a clean break with history and that you can abandon all the ancients and we have a new way of thinking that is reason-based and this is what's going to cure the world. It's, it's sort of the, the same philosophy that you see in, in the neo-Enlightenment crew, the Stephen Pinkers and the Sam Harrises. Uh, I don't agree with that and I think Strauss is correct when he says our roots have a lot deeper history. I think Strauss took on a lot deeper questions about the limits of reason and where revelation is necessary. Uh, but the, So that's the part of his philosophy I just love and I think is really great and he's He's provocative. Uh, his writing can be abstruse. And this is the part of Strauss that's difficult. And this is where I will say that there are Straussian scholars who know way more about Leo Strauss than I do. But that's because Leo Straus designed it that way. So Leo Strauss is very into what they, what they Straussians call the esoteric-exoteric distinction. The idea that you can read a Straussian text and if you don't have a teacher who is kind of winding you through the Straussian text and you can get the wrong impression from it, he's written it at two levels. One is for the, the non-Straussians and one is for the Straussians. Uh, as somebody who spends their life trying to clarify ideas and make them easier for people to access, I'm not a big fan of this idea that like you have to be near the holy of holies to really understand this sort of stuff. I think that that's, yeah, I think it's a mistake. But you know, he's taking his cues from from the ancients who who said that there was sort of a natural aristocracy who were capable of understanding these things. I understand what he's doing. He actually first got the idea from Maimonides because in Guide for the Perplexed, Maimonides explicitly says he's writing at two levels. But with all that said, it's not my favorite part of his philosophy, and a lot of people, I think are fond of it because it allows for obfuscation of, of what exactly his ideas are. Oh, you don't understand. It's esoteric. It's esoteric. And it's like, well, then explain it to me. Right? I mean, if we're in the business of ideas, then let's do this together. Man, just got taken back to the Lincoln Fellowship. That's exactly right. Enjoy <laughs> yourself, man. Chaim says, I really should just have yeah, you this, ask he this says, question. What's the idea behind Tarat HaMishpacha? I love your work. So Tarat HaMishpacha, is the, there, there's laws of marital purity in Judaism. This is some of the controversial stuff in Orthodox Judaism. So... Not to get too graphic, but if you go back to the Old Testament, there are specific laws about when men and women can have sex, when, when you're married. But it's not just when you're married. There are certain times of the month when you're not supposed to have sex. And the idea here is that you're not supposed to violate a woman's kind of privacy, that there are certain times of the month a woman does not want to have sex. And, that, and so during those times of the month, a man is forced to not, you know, be with, be with his wife during those times. And there's a lot stacked on top of that as far as how you, how you go about that. Uh, you, women in, in the Orthodox community... Uh, upon the completion of their period, to be perfectly frank about all this, have to go to a mikvah, which is a body, an immersive body of water, uh, and then they have to, um, and then they are considered pure again. Um, but you know, I think people have misread a lot of this stuff deliberately in order to suggest that it's all about women are gross when they're in their period, or you shouldn't touch them because they're yucky or something. But it's born but, out of a respect. My understanding is that it's born out of respect for a woman. Well, and yeah, like what I mean, her, I don't, she I don't, wants. I mean, frankly, I, I know a lot of women who are desperate to have sex on their period. So that's <laughs> so it was really meant to protect women against those sorts of things. Also, I mean, just speaking objectively, it was meant to channel the sexual drive toward the production of children because mm-hmm. when the woman is more fertile, it's obviously not at that point. So that, that's sort of the basis for Tarat Mishpacha. All right, Paul says, Hi, Ben. Do you believe that there is meaning or a purpose to dreaming? I had a dream that I was telling me I had feelings for someone that I'm trying not to because I think she's into someone else. So I think sometimes, yeah. I mean, sometimes if you're deeply frustrated about something, it comes out in your dreams because it's just buried there. Um, you know, the, the, the truth is that scientists are still trying to figure out exactly what mm-hmm. dreams are for. You know, are, when, they're trying to figure out what sleep is for still, right? Is sleep designed to allow memories to consolidate in your mind? Is it allow, designed to allow your brain to sort of recover? Mm-hmm. Are dreams just recapitulations of things happening during the day or are they something else? There's a lot of controversy scientifically about what dreams are. Uh, but I found in my personal life, there are certain dreams where you wake up and you're like, yeah, that was symbolic. Yeah, I know exactly what that dream was. And then there's certain dreams where you're like, I have no idea what in the world was happening there. And uh, so, you know, I don't know whether if you woke up and you felt like that was symbolic in terms of your feelings for somebody, uh, then probably it was because you're probably acknowledging now what it was. But that doesn't mean that just because you had a dream about somebody that this means that you're into them or in love with them or anything like that. Like, I wouldn't take your cues from your unconscious because you are unconscious. But if you're really into her, even if you think she's into somebody else, you need to man up and ask her out. Um, Maybe. Yes, because he, she, she could well, think she's into somebody else, but she's really not oh, into somebody okay, else. Okay, so, so that's fair. I but also know two it, couples but, who but are now happily married with children, and the woman was dating another guy when they met. Okay, so I think we have some conflict here. I think that is a douche <laughs> thing to do, to approach a girl if she's dating another guy. No, they didn't approach. They became friends, and then she broke up with the guy, and then they started dating like oh, a year so later. Oh, they were those kind of douches who were like, <laughs> okay, so you, so that goes, so, you, oh, your boyfriend, you know, I, I really hate the way that he treats you. It's really terrible the way that he treats you. Maybe you should break up with him. You know who'd be great for you. I don't know. You're assuming that that was the scenario, and I don't know that either of the cases That's, that I'm aware of is the scenario. Those were the, the facts that you just gave me. No, they were friends. 
and then they just happen to want to date after. By the way, good rule for women. If a man wants to be friends with you and he's not married, okay, and he's not... He like, doesn't really want Alicia, to be your friend. Correct. Alicia and I are like brother and sister. We met each other when we were both married. Okay, like this is not... This was never a thing. But for a lot of men and women, when you're a single woman and a single man wants to be friends with you, you ain't want to be friends. Nope. That's not a thing. Nope. Okay, and women who think this are like, oh, I'm so naive. Does that guy actually just want to be... Nope. Nope. Also, oh, but he's not into me. He even has a girlfriend. You're the backup option, lady. Sorry to break it to you. <laughs> Men also like attention. And so well, yes. anywhere they can get the attention, they're going to get the attention. Totally accurate. Like, because deep down, they're all really insecure and they just want attention from females. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I, mean, I can't argue with that. Okay. <laughs> we got five minutes left, so we're going to keep rolling here. Danny says, what's your opinion on Brexit, the good and the bad? So my opinion on Brexit is that Brexit is a necessary reaction to a European overregulation of national society. I don't think that the European Union should be regulating internal politics inside Britain. The problem is that because the EU has been gradually increasing its control over British society, now it's very difficult for the Brits to extricate without the EU trying to punish them for that. I don't think that there's going to be a Brexit without some serious pain. Again, I think that the there is a Brexit to be had step by step. But it's, it's going to be very difficult because the EU is trying to punish right now anybody who wants any sort of Brexit uh, by saying, OK, well, we won't make a new trade deal with you or we won't allow people to from from your side of the of the channel to engage in particular business with us. We're going to take away all these benefits because you guys have been mean to us, uh, which, you know, again, I think a lot of that is overplayed. I think that the the if there were to be a hard Brexit, it would be really problematic for a short period of time. Mm. And then the EU would still want the British involved in some way, shape, or form. I mean, it just doesn't benefit anybody to, to say that because Britain doesn't want a free flow of people into Britain who can just live there for any reason, that because of that, we're not going to trade product with you. That doesn't make any sense. But what are your feelings on Meghan Merkle? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't I have, have so strong... many thoughts on her. I know you do. I know this is a question for Alicia. Alicia's no. like, Alicia, what are your thoughts on Meghan Markle? Well, I will tell you my thoughts on Meghan Markle. No. Yeah, I know, no, I know people you, don't want to hear about that right I know, now. I know that you're ticked about about the fact that you feel she's ripping away the British identity of her husband, not letting him hunt and all no, this kind of stuff. No, not even. I could care less about the British identity. I know the manhood you, of your husband. If he wants to hunt, let a man hunt. Real know, men hunt. I know your suggestion is that she's a gold digger because you ain't seen her with no, you know. <laughs> but, th- but still, I have no thoughts on this. It's the royal family. I don't care. Yeah, you're like the, we, we were liberated from them. I have testes. I don't care. <laughs> your mom does, though, so I'll call her after right, this and talk to her about it. because she does not, in fact, it. have testes. This is correct. <laughs> I will talk to your mom about it. I will be like, Megan versus Kate, who is going down? Megan. All right, just a reminder, everyone, that Ben's new book, The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great, will be out in March, and you can pre-order your copy right now over at therightsideofhistorybook.com. I just love the title of the book, because I'm reminded of Obama and every single time he used that dumb phrase. Right, it is a dumb phrase. And the point of the book, The Right Side of History, is, first of all, there really is no right side of history in the sense that history is not self-creating. It's not as though history exists in the absence of individual mm-hmm. decisions. But second of all, that if you are going to talk about the right side of history, then Western civilization is what's on it. Uh, and if you want to be on the right side of history, then you might want to actually look back at what made the West great in the first place. All right. I think we have time for the last question. Ooh. Drum roll from Neil. Ben, how do you counter the idea of free will with the idea that your brain can uncontrollably send you into depression? Great question. So the fact is that obviously your ability to choose is deeply tied into your brain chemistry. There are people in my family who have suffered with depression. There are people in my family. My grandfather suffered from either manic depression or schizophrenia. Still kind of unclear on the diagnosis there. But there's no question that your brain state can change your capacity for free will. The question is, do you have capacity for free will at any level? Not, is it limited by your brain state? Because sure, it's, it's for sure limited by your brain state. And, and the number of the kinds of decisions that you can make are limited by your, your biology, right? I mean, we're not all born with equal mental capacities. We're not all born with equal feelings capacities, right? We're not, we're not all born with, with any of these things. But the question is, in certain specific situations, do you have the capacity to choose otherwise? Like, given all the same circumstances, are you fated to choose this thing because biology and environment have dictated it? Or can you choose to not do that? Now, I'm not somebody who thinks that you can break out of depression inevitably without drugs. I think there are certain people who can, but I don't think that that is true for everyone. And I think that medication can be incredibly useful for depression, which is why I'm not anti the use of medication when it comes to people who are suffering from mental illness or depression, because that actually expands your capacity to make freely willed choices. But I'm not going to pretend there aren't limitations on freely willed choices in the same way that if you were chained in a dungeon, there would be limitations on your choice. Biologically, if you're chained in a certain dungeon in terms of your emotions and your feelings, your, your choice has been circumscribed. That doesn't mean it's been completely removed, but it does mean that it's been heavily circumscribed for sure. 
All right. I know that you didn't have fun, but I had fun for this episode of The Conversation. I'm glad. I'm so glad that I someone hope, had fun. I hope show. everyone viewing was having fun because everyone gets to watch, but only our subscribers asked all of those really good questions. It was a good round of questions this time around. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone, and be sure to subscribe to thedailywire.com now so you can join us for next month's episode of The Conversation on Tuesday, January 15th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific, featuring the hotly bearded Andrew Clavin. Absolutely. I'll see you later, guys. Thanks. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.